0: Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hey, I'm joined in by a very special guest, um, somebody that I've looked up to over the years in regards to... Uh, learning more about you know metabolic health and insulin resistance, um, because this man, in my opinion, is definitely a pioneer uh, in this field. So, um, Benjamin, welcome to the welcome to the show, man.
1: Uh, Lucas, hey, what a that's a nice introduction. Thanks, brother. Yeah, if if I'm a pioneer of insulin resistance, it's simply because it's such an unpopular topic, so no one else cares to talk about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so I thought we'd sort of maybe start out by um, you know, giving my listeners a bit of an introduction into um, your background and, and your experience in this field.
1: Yeah, so my background started with a focus on how the body responds to exercise. So I was initially interested in what happened at, say, well, most specifically the muscle. When we challenge a muscle, it gets bigger, it gets stronger, and... Towards the and that's what I started. Uh, that was the area of research I started with um, with my master's degree, and then as I progressed through my uh, graduate degree, I was increasingly interested in fat cells, and and it really started with one moment where I found a manuscript um, where the the scientists were publishing that fat cells secreted hormones, and in particular pro-inflammatory hormones. So that was sort of a twofold interest. One, it identified that fat cells are an endocrine organ. So our fat tissue is an endocrine organ, like our thyroid or our pancreas. It's releasing hormones into the body. And two, it's these pro-inflammatory proteins that uh, at the time we thought, and and I think that's justified even to this day, it connects obesity to so many other diseases like insulin resistance. Part of the cause of insulin resistance is this process of fat cells getting too big and becoming inflammatory. And then it starts to spread this insulin resistance throughout the body.
0: So maybe we can touch on, um, I know there's a a lot of people sort of discussing how body composition can influence, um, you know, general metabolic health. But I know I've seen many people that are actually, they're they're actually skinny, but they can be insulin resistant at the same time. So do you want to sort of, a little bit
1: mm-hmm. yeah, so in fact, there are studies I'm thinking of a couple studies uh, in in women that look at the effects that look at the differences in women with and without polycystic ovarian syndrome, the most common form of infertility. What's relevant about that, lest someone be wondering why is Bickman bringing up a fertility problem, PCOS at its core is a metabolic disease, in fact, an insulin resistance problem where the insulin resistance is affecting the ovaries ability. To convert testosterone into estrogens, because that's what happens in the ovaries. Insulin blocks that from happening. And so the woman's never getting this big spike of estrogens, which then means she can never ovulate, which means she's, uh, in, well, has infertility as a consequence. So in these studies that look at um, women with and without PCOS that are the same weight, they're the same body weight. And yet the women with PCOS have more fat and specifically more visceral fat. And so how we store fat matters more, I would argue, than how much fat we have. And that's a combination of both the specific location and like where we're storing fat, um, the depot, where it's physically located, and the, and the nature of our fat tissue growing. Is it growing through individual fat cells getting big? What's called hypertrophy. That is a bad way to grow fat cells. That that that's when fat cells become insulin resistant. Or is it that the fat tissue is growing and it's growing through hyperplasia, where they're multiplying, they're proliferating. That's a healthier way to get fat.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I've heard um, I've heard a lot of theories in regards to inadequate use of blood sugar being linked to excess free fatty acids in the bloodstream. So maybe, did you want to explore a little bit on that, how that's sort of linked to,
1: yeah. like Yeah. yeah so one of the problems with um, progressive insulin resistance is that the body starts swimming in a sea of both glucose and fat. And that is happening, well, there could be a lot of variables that come into play, but I would argue the most relevant one is the the uh, fat cells becoming insulin resistant and leaking free fatty acids. That's one part. So normally insulin would come to the uh, fat cells and tell the fat cells to stop, to to store fat and to not leak it. When the big hypertrophic fat cell becomes insulin resistant, uh, it starts leaking the fat, even though insulin is trying to tell it not to. So that's going to contribute to increasing fat, free fatty acids in the blood. And then beyond that, indeed, quite distinct from that is what happens when the liver becomes insulin resistant. When the liver becomes insulin resistant, it starts to break down its own glycogen. So it's stored glucose and starts leaking that into the blood, increasing glucose. Even though insulin is trying to lower blood glucose, when the liver is insulin resistant, it doesn't get that signal to be storing glucose as glycogen. It starts to break down the glycogen. So the insulin resistant liver is leaking glucose and insulin is hyperstimulating the production of triglycerides that will get released as triglycerides within um, cholesterol within lipoproteins like VLDL, which then gets, of course, converted to LDL throughout the body.
0: Yeah, I find that really fascinating. Um, you know, a lot of people have been discussing hepatic insulin resist, resistance in in the context of the um, of the carnivore diet. Um, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. So I. I have in fact, even right earlier today, I see on my Twitter feed a lot of people are bringing up this physiological insulin resistance that you see with the low carbohydrate diet and oh I rage against that idea I would just the, the more that is not true I will say that with a, a very high degree of confidence um, a low carbohydrate diet does not create insulin resistance. a carnivore diet does not create insulin resistance. It creates, I will say, it creates a form of glucose intolerance. And someone can choose to think that's a good or a bad thing. I, I don't care about that. I don't care which side of the argument they take in that regard. But what happens is that as the person is avoiding carbohydrates for an extended period of time, which, of course, you're doing um, completely on a, on a carnivore diet, uh, the body has sh- so so thoroughly shifted it's fuel use to fat metabolism. It's so heavily relying on fat, which it does because insulin is so low now that when you suddenly spike your glucose, then it takes a little longer to clear that glucose. You have a degree of glucose intolerance. However, that is not the same as insulin resistance. Insulin resistance in every single state, whether it is pathological, which we see in um, spreading around the world, you know, the clinically relevant kind of disease state of insulin resistance, or whether it's the physiological insulin resistance that we actually do see with pregnancy and puberty. Those are the two instances. I say physiological because the body goes into insulin resistance on purpose to serve a purpose, mm-hmm. to help the kid grow through puberty or to help mom uh, get fat and help fetus grow quickly in, during, uh, during pregnancy In both of those instances, what they have in common is that insulin is elevated. You cannot have insulin resistance without hyperinsulinemia. I am unaware of a single instance of that happening ever, pathological or physiological. And that is important because it helps us understand that a carnivore diet or any low carb diet does not cause insulin resistance because the insulin comes down exquisitely low very, very quickly far better than any other intervention. And that indeed is at the heart of why I am an advocate of a low-carbohydrate diet, because the more I appreciate the relevance of insulin resistance in longevity and in disease, the more I appreciate that the key is keeping insulin low. If you can live a life with low insulin, you are going to have an insulin-sensitive body.
0: Mm. Yeah, one thing I wanted to sort of um, bridge upon was the fact that um, for some people, they experience normal fasting blood sugar levels, but their insulin is actually high. So, as in, like for example, a lot of doctors will run blood tests, and you know they'll have a normal fasting uh, fasting glucose, and then but they're missing an entire picture. Oh yeah, yeah.
1: yeah in fact, that's that is one of the uh, one of the most important missions that I, I sort of have taken on. If there is one thing I hope someone well one one contribution I hope I will have made by the end of my career will have been to played at least a small part in helping move insulin from the back row of all these conversations right up to the front so the the paradigm that you describe is so relevant because you can have a patient coming in for their annual visits with the doctor and the doctor is only ever doing the typical um, measurements. They're looking at lipids. The doctor's looking at glucose. And that's pretty, really, usually that's it. They look at the cholesterol lipid markers and they look at glucose and that's the end of it done. And so they're, they're looking at the person and they, and they see, well, your glucose is normal, ah, but your blood pressure is starting to climb. Ah, your glucose is normal, but you have infertility. And so what ends up happening is the patient leaves with a prescription for a fertility drug or a prescription for their their, their hypertension. And never, at no point, no conversation has it ever come up that maybe they should check insulin. And and like you would said, if they did, they'd find that in the midst of this normal glucose, there's this war being fought in the body where insulin is slaving away at ever higher levels in order to try to keep that glucose in check. But Mm. it does. As insulin resistant as the body's becoming demanding more and more insulin, it's able to get the job done and keep the glucose in check. And then eventually, in some of these people, they reach the point where they are so resistant to their own insulin that even though they are still hyperinsulinemic, now the glucose starts to climb. And this state, high insulin, normal glucose, is insulin resistance. And it can happen 10 years before the glucose starts to change. So imagine not only would we treat the disease better, we would detect it so much sooner and be able to intervene so much earlier if we just stopped looking at metabolic health through the lens of glucose and, in contrast, started embracing the idea that insulin matters arguably more than glucose.
0: Yeah, I mean, I find that so fascinating—the um, fact that it's so neglected. Um, but I'm yep. really, I'm, I'm happy that you're voicing, you're voicing your research, and, and, and that's you know that's something you. You can um, put forward because uh, it's definitely something that's, it, it bugs me as well. You know, when I see people um, saying that they feel like metabolically healthy, I'm just like, I'll question them. I'm like, am right, have you had your fasting insulin check? It's like, you no. Know, like,
1: yeah. Yeah. In, in fact, in, indeed, Lucas, it goes even further. Like I just alluded to a treatment. If we only look at disease, like type two diabetes through the lens of glucose, then once the glucose does start to change, conventional medicine would say, well, who cares what your insulin is? Let's push it up even higher. And so they'll start giving the person like drugs that are called insulin secretagogues, like forcing the beta cells to make more insulin or just frankly giving them insulin injections. They, They actually start treating themselves with exogenous insulin, putting more insulin into the body. So it was already a high insulin becomes super physiological, you know, it hits the roof and Sure enough, the glucose comes down. And so the clinician will say, oh, well, we're doing it. It's working. We're lowering your glucose. But when you treat a type 2 diabetic with insulin or with an insulin secretagogue, there are studies to show that you increase the risk of cancer significantly and you increase the risk of heart disease significantly. So while we are giving them wonderful glucose levels, we are making making them fatter and sicker than before. Mm. <clears throat> yeah. Um,
0: okay. Do you want to maybe touch on, I know there's um, people that
1: experience the sort of reactive hypoglycemia. Um, how does that come into play? Yeah. 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 That's a great question. Yeah. Typically reactive uh, hypoglycemia or, or, or a postprandial hypoglycemia is when th- that's an early sign of insulin resistance where the person has eaten uh, an, a glucose and insulin spiking carbohydrate. You know, that's like, uh, we we go eat a bagel. And then then in the healthy person, glucose comes up and then there's a commensurate appropriate insulin response and it brings the glucose right back to normal and the insulin comes back to normal. In insulin resistance, we've spiked up the glucose and because maintaining a high glucose level is lethal, and I do mean lethal, then we get an insulin response because insulin wants to save the body, of course, but in the insulin-resistant state, it's it's too high. It's not commensurate with the glucose. And so this insulin overshoot results in this temporary hypoglycemia. So the, the glucose curve went up really high. Now it has come down, and here was normal, and it has dipped below normal. This period of time where someone has this relative hypoglycemia, and I do emphasize relative because it, it's not going to be like clinical hypoglycemia, which is typically considered around, I don't know, millimolar near in Australia. Um, so so it, anyway, it would be just a, a level that most people can't get to, like right. true hypoglycemia is a level most people can't get to. But that doesn't change the reality of the fact that if someone is used to a certain level of glucose, when they have pushed it down, even for a short period of time, that is, they feel it, especially if a person is, is, used to always relying on glucose as their primary fuel and not fat, they're sensitive to that relative dip. And the person can sense a very anxious hunger about two hours after eating or so, and they feel like they need to eat something again, which is laughable because the person is probably often they are overweight. They've often eaten hundreds or thousands of calories, right? Two hours before there's no possible way that person actually needs energy. But because they are like stuck in sugar burning mode, which is the definition of metabolic inflexibility, because of the elevated insulin, they're always burning glucose in, in the in the so person with metabolic flexibility, that relative drop in glucose, it wouldn't even they wouldn't even notice it because they're so able to just burn fat as well. They can just switch to an alternative fuel. You know, they are able to use the the human metabolism like the hybrid that it is and shift between sugar burning and fat burning quite readily because insulin can come up and down. But when you're stuck in sugar burning mode because of chronic elevated insulin, you get that. You can potentially get that reactive hypoglycemic period of time. And the person will sense this as as a genuine, almost panicked kind of hunger because the brain, which is so dependent on glucose in that person, senses this relative reduction in glucose and lights up the the hunger system.
0: Yeah, I mean that's um, yeah, that's super fascinating. I sort of want to segment into um, perhaps linking in HPA axis dysfunction or like cortisol hyperreactivity in regards to you know potentially damaging beta cells and things like that.
1: Yeah, so you're you're kind of invoking the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. 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 So cortisol is extraordinarily powerful with regards to its effects on the body. So cortisol comes from the adrenal gland, um, just as all listeners know why we're mentioning the adrenal gland at all. Cortisol is one of the main hormones that comes from the adrenal gland. And cortisol, one of its main actions or, or purposes, one of its main purposes is to increase blood glucose. And it will want to increase blood glucose through any means, indeed it will strip the proteins from our very muscles in order to get those amino acids to send to the liver to have the liver make new glucose it has it has no regard it will it will inhibit recovery and healing just so that it doesn't the body doesn't use glucose in the process it's so cortisol wants to break everything down just to increase blood glucose insulin is an opposite insulin wants to build things up and in so doing, pull in energy from the blood, like glucose. So if you have a state of chronically elevated um, cortisol, which absolutely can happen these days, you will cause rampant insulin resistance. That stress hormone causes insulin resistance. And this happens, I say it's, it's rampant, this happens um, in part because of the psychological, emotional stress that we constantly live with you know, it's hard to get on social media nowadays, especially without being inundated with these hyper-polarized political stances. And most people are sleep deprived because they can't get off their phone. And so they're sleeping poorly or they're anxious when they're sleeping. And that that is also a stress on sleep deprivation. So I'm getting off on a bit of a tangent, but when you're spiking cortisol, you are, you are destroying the body Literally breaking the body down, and all for the sake of increasing your blood glucose levels.
0: Mm. Yeah, you obviously touched on sleep being a profoundly important um, factor in potentially like mediating, you know, the effects of insulin resistance. Do you want to sort of touch on how sleep deprivation can influence somebody's ability to tolerate sugar?
1: Yeah yeah so sleep like i mentioned is sleep deprivation is a stress and it, and it's a it's a very powerful one you can this has been done clinically where healthy college students um were 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 kept awake you know they were they were like basically aggravated and 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 you know poked at all night to make sure they stayed awake and they they were they were significantly demonstrably insulin resistant the next day there is what i'll say about sleep it's interesting where Every time we wake up, there is this. There's this little bump in cortisol every morning. That's that makes the body a little more insulin resistant um, during that during a few hours in, in the very first part of the morning when we're waking up, or right around the time, you know. So typically around like four to seven a.m., the body has this cortisol bump. It starts to make the, the body a little insulin resistant, and that that is that has a physiological relevance. It's thought that that happens in order to increase blood glucose, in order to feed the brain. As the brain is kind of coming awake again and its energetic needs increase compared to when it was sleeping, when it was resting, if you will, now it needs more energy. And so it's nice that we can spike the glucose a little bit because of the cortisol spike. And now we can feed the brain adequately. Although, of course, the brain does not have a total dependence on glucose. It can also use ketones. So I just need to mention that. But uh, chronic sleep deprivation essentially just drives that cortisol phenomenon into overdrive and, and the the longer in cortisol is elevated, the longer it is antagonizing insulin um, it is called an insulin antagonist, and insulin just has to work harder and harder in order to try to do its job
0: mm. yeah, very interesting. Um, maybe we can sort of um, touch on a little bit about you know the link between. Simulating mTOR versus MK because I know they're two, you know, very popular um, topics. Yeah. Following metabolic health What's what's the link
1: there? Yeah, yeah. That's those are you're touching on some really relevant stuff. mTOR, just by way of introduction for for those listening, mTOR is a is a protein in in our cells that will tell a cell to build. So it's very anabolic. It wants to build things. It wants to pull in energy. And store it and build. So it's a good thing. We need it. Uh, Absolutely. It's essential to human survival to have that turned on sometimes, Um, but not all the time. Uh, What is interesting about mTOR is even at the muscle, uh, at the level of the muscle cell, which is one of the most obvious cells to pick with regards to something growing. If you are chronically activating mTOR, it starts to resist its effects. The mTOR signal starts to dampen. You don't get that anabolic response anymore. So what you need to do to really appropriately take advantage of mTOR and maintain lean mass, bone and muscle and and beyond, you need to spike it. It has to be cyclical. You want mTOR to be turned on and then it's turned off. It's turned on, it's turned off. And exercise can turn that on. Dietary protein can turn that on. And insulin itself can turn on mTOR very well. Now, AMPK is the opposite it's the yin and the yang. So mTOR wants to build something up, AMPK wants to break it down. So AMPK would be telling a cell to break down what it has, don't build things up. So this is obvious if we look at like the liver and the fat cells, AMPK stimulates the breakdown of stored fat and the breakdown of stored glycogen in the liver. But if you look at the fat cell, when AMPK is turned on, the fat cell will start undergoing lipolysis, and it will stimulate the sharing of energy and the use of energy. So, if you activate AMPK in a muscle cell, you're stimulating glucose oxidation and you're stimulating fatty acid oxidation. So, these two hormones, the yin and the, these proteins—sorry, this yin and yang um, within the cell—they are essential. They're each, you know, pulling the cell at different times, one way or the other. And it's, I would say it's, it's a sort of beautiful ebb and flow, as it's supposed to be. One of the problems nowadays with mTOR, if you'll allow me to kind of elaborate, is that people fear it too much, or they fear it mistakenly. It is true that if you are chronically activating mTOR, you are likely feeding, um, increasing the potential for cancer, for a tumor to grow. And so a lot of people will, will invoke a fear of mTOR because of a fear of cancer, and mTOR being one of the primary protein signals that helps a cancer grow, and also they will invoke a fear of mTOR with regards to um, to aging, because if you're chronically keeping mTOR activated, um, although we don't have evidence for this in humans, but it, it seems that you are promoting aging, and that the key to longevity is to not be spiking mTOR too much. Now, because dietary protein increases mTOR, that has resulted in some people creating um, diets that that are that they 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 posit can promote longevity um, just because you're not spiking your mTOR as much by avoiding the protein. The problem with that perspective is that insulin also spikes or activates mTOR, and so these these diets that are that are supposedly promoting longevity by inhibiting mTOR, by not spiking mTOR. They are often very high carbohydrate diets, and that to me is just laughably wrong headed. To to eschew protein in favor of carbohydrate because you don't want to spike mTOR, when insulin can spike mTOR even stronger than amino acids do, that's that's just silly. And the human evidence does not support that paradigm. If you look at protein con- 65, they're uh, those that eat the lowest amount of protein have the highest mortality. And let me say that in a different way. So the people that are over the age of sixty-five, if they, uh, those that are eating the higher protein have the best longevity. So that directly challenges this idea that uh, that that protein is is some devil when it comes to aging. That that data directly challenge that idea. Mm.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you brought up the the protein side of things because obviously. Um, you know, there's a lot of people discussing um, the different types of amino. Acids. You know, we've got the insulinogenic amino acids and the ketogenic amino acids. Mm-hmm. So, but there's crossover as well. There's some that are both. Um, so, perhaps maybe we can discuss a little bit about maybe is there any research in that realm of like restricting particular amino acids potentially methionine? Yeah,
1: like yeah. So, I, if I remember correctly and I do have to speculate a little bit, I think the most insulinogenic is alanine. And I think, I think arginine is also quite insulinogenic, but a listener would be able to confirm after and prove me right or wrong. But regardless, um, I personally do not believe we should worry about that. We should eat amino acids as God intended them to be eaten, which is from animal proteins and, and pay, pay no regard to, well, am I getting the more insulin spiking amino acids or not? Who cares? If it's coming from an animal protein, it's one that we are built to eat. Dairy, meat, and eggs, those are proteins that we have eaten since time immemorial as humans, and they are the best. They are demonstrably the best. And, and I'll kind of riff on that for just a moment, um, just because I feel so strongly about it. Nowadays, there's this obsession with plant protein. And I can see why. Because if you are making a protein supplement, you as a company, as a manufacturer, you want to use plant protein because it is so much cheaper than animal proteins. And I can say that from experience, as with a couple of my brothers, we've made a protein shake. In fact, I'm not so subtly displaying it here. Um, And in fact, let me just be really self-promoting for a moment. Everyone who wants to learn about it, go to health. and that's HLTH.com to learn more. But back on the topic, Um, as a manufacturer, you want to use plant protein because it's so cheap and it lets you check the boxes of being, you know, vegan friendly. And that lets you have a bigger market and people want to see that on labels for some reason. But these proteins are inferior in every way. You take the best plant proteins and they will still not have all the amino acids that you need. They will not be as good. Uh, second, all plant proteins have, this sounds like it's mythical, but I, I swear it's real. Everyone can look it up. Plant proteins have things called anti-nutrients that actually physically block the body's ability to absorb and to digest all those amino acids. Things called tannins, lectins, um, trypsin inhibitors, phytic acids. These are real things that get enriched in plant proteins. Uh, all the scientific evidence to support all of that. And then lastly, um, when you are concentrating protein from these very protein-poor things like peas, you know, I I don't know the exact number you'd need, but let's say you'd need a thousand peas um, to get one serving of protein. The protein is what you're you're wanting to get, but you get some unintended um, things as well. Like all the metals, plants are naturally pulling up metals from the earth, and that, that happens. There's no avoiding that. And when you just eat the plants, you get such a minuscule, negligible amount that it doesn't matter. But when you've been concentrating this, these plants, you get higher levels, dangerous potentially levels of lead and arsenic. Plant proteins are high in those heavy metals. So for heaven's sakes, people, do yourselves a favor. Get plant, uh, get animal protein. And, and I would even say, uh, get it the way... God intended, if, uh, which, which is with fat. Protein comes with fat. And even the science supports that, that balance where a study was done. Uh, this is, of course, an academic setting where they were pulling biopsies from muscle and looking at the rate at which the muscle was making new protein. So that's something called muscle protein synthesis. And after a bout of exercise, when they gave these, these men a, a protein load, Um, they noticed that muscle protein synthesis was significantly higher than without the protein. And then interestingly, when they gave them protein and fat together in a one-to-one mass, not by calorie, but by mass, then the muscle protein synthesis went up a significant level again. So fat and protein is more anabolic than protein alone. And, And I think that this is reflected in nature. The best protein sources, dairy, meat and eggs all come with fat so who are we to try to outsmart what nature has given us eat let protein come with fat it, it's natural it's more satisfying and indeed it is more anabolic
0: and when you say the fat you're specifically referring to saturated fats right
1: I yeah I sure am yeah Lucas so you're yeah let's get let's get controversial yeah so yeah. saturated fat is absolutely been demonized with with no justification I, uh, when, when I, when I sort of pillars of, of nutrition, one of my pillars is don't fear fat, um, embrace it uh, as a species. We absolutely need it. There are fats that are essential to human survival. So, so eat them and you cannot get them from plants. You cannot get the right omega-3 fatty acids from plants. It's impossible. Uh, so, so more evidence that we are not meant to be vegan with all due respect to, to vegans. Um, we, uh, so saturated fats are part of our natural um, evolutionary diet. We, w- when, I am an, when I'm advocating eating fat, I will say eat fat from animals and fruits because that's how we've eaten them forever. The animal fat is obvious since t- we've been eating animals since the very beginning. There's no questioning that. And then the fruit fats we've also been eating for millennia because fruit fats, the most common are, are going to be in human history. It would be olives and coconuts. Because all we needed to do was get the flesh, the flesh of the fruit, and then just squish it. Once we compressed that flesh, we would get an oil from it. You cannot say that about all the other fats, like soybean oil, canola oil, corn seed oil, everything that they call vegetable oil, none of which are vegetables, they're all seeds, and they're all these industrial seed oils that have to go through a remarkable process in order to get oil from them. But I would say... Don't, we shouldn't confuse that with milled um, seed like chia and flax. And let me just defend those for just a moment because I know in the low-carb space, we typically will just poo-poo all seed fats and just say they're all garbage. Avoid them all. In general, that's true. But the, the omega-3, the seed-based omega-3 alpha-linolenic acid that you get from like flax and chia, while it does not convert well into EPA and DHA, which are the essential fatty acids, it is still there. It is very ketogenic. In fact, ALA, that omega-3 from like milled flax and chia seed is the most burned of all the long chain fats. So the long chain fatty acids are the predominant fats in our diet and that's appropriate. Um, but that, that one omega-3 ALA is, is the most burned. It's burned more rapidly than any of the other long chain fats. And actually that makes it the most ketogenic of all the long chain fats. Mm-hmm.
0: Super interesting. Well, um, yeah. Obviously, we sort of segmented into a little bit on the polyunsaturated fatty acids. um, Yeah, I I did. Debated quite a lot in terms of um, creating lipofuscin and and also, um, you know, damaging cell membranes and things like that when they become oxidized.
1: Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's right. So, indeed, it's that reality that I have in mind when I advocate natural fats like fruit and animal fats. a lot of the, let's look at this in the context of heart disease. I find like that's that's a helpful way to look at the, the utility or the lethality of the fats that we eat, the long chain fats. When, when we are worried about heart disease, what we're worried about is the formation of atherosclerotic plaques. We get concerned with the idea that our coronary arteries are going to get blocked with these plaques and will block blood flow. And then we'll have a heart attack or we'll have a stroke if it's blocking blood vessels in the brain. Needless to say, that's something we want to avoid. There is tremendous debate, tremendous indeed theory, theorizing and speculation as to what is the actual origin of the plaque. So everyone listening should know, we don't exactly know what causes an atherosclerotic plaque to form. But what appears to be essential is the formation of lipid peroxides. These are these, when a lipid has become oxidized it has become this very reactive molecule that we we just need to do our best to avoid because once it's reactive it can like you said it can start banging in to cell membranes proteins dna and damaging all of those things wrecking a cell causing a mutation disrupting the mitochondria so when a lipid becomes oxidized or becomes a lipid peroxide then it's problematic And so then we should say, well, which lipids become lipid peroxides or which are the most reactive? Well, it's the polyunsaturated fats because those polyunsaturated have multiple unsaturated sites and they become, they're the most susceptible to becoming reactive. Mm. In contrast, the fats that are the most stable are the saturated fats. So the, the very fats that we fear causing heart disease may in fact be the ones that are the safest when it comes to heart disease, because they don't react. Indeed, I know of no evidence indicating that in, in the body, a saturated fat can become a lipid peroxide. I don't, I don't know of that happening at all. Indeed, if you want to make a saturated fat react, you have to heat it up to like 300 Celsius, which you can do. But even still, if you're cooking with an oil, you're heating that oil, the more saturated the oil is, the more stable it will be. And so if you're, if you're making something on the stovetop with a pan, then you want to go for something like butter or even better coconut oil, which is almost totally saturated fat because it stays, it it maintains its stability. It does not become these reactive lipids that are going to damage every cell once it comes into your body. And then of course, as if you're using something at room temperature, well, then the monounsaturated fats are perfect. Like olive oil or, or avocado oil, avocado is also a fruit fat, of course. Um, in those instances, but again, it's mostly monounsaturated. Um, it is, it is still very stable, and because it's a liquid at room temperature, well, then it's perfect. Because you can't put coconut oil on your salad, and so then, then a monounsaturated fat becomes perfect. But the hotter you're going to get it, the more saturated you want it to be, and that is evidence of just how stable saturated fats are.
0: I love it, man. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> There's uh, a lot to unpack there, and I guess my listeners will probably want to, will probably want to learn more about about that. I'm sure you probably covered that in, um, in in the book, in the background. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. So thanks for mentioning. Everyone, go buy my book. Help, help out a <laughs> help out a poor professor. Um, yeah. So in, in why we get sick, I do I do elaborate a little bit on this, the differential effects of fatty acids, and I do it actually as a little kind of tangent. Throughout the book, I have lots of little tangents that don't really necessarily fit within the orderly structure of the book. And, and this was one of them where I highlight the the real conflict in data in trying to point the finger at saturated fat in the context of heart disease, because that's where it all started. The fear of saturated fat all entirely started because of a fear of heart disease. And it was this this suspected culprit and the data just don't support it. Exactly. All right. So maybe we'll, we've got about
0: maybe 10 more minutes until this live is over, but maybe we can, um, touch on a little bit about perhaps, um, time restricted. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and time that, that's a
1: great question. Um, so let me, before I answer that, let me just pay homage to, um, Jason Fung, Dr. Jason Fung, anyone who wants to learn more about Intermittent fasting really should look at the work of Jason Fung. We, we in, in this space, talking, anytime we talk about intermittent fasting, I think it's appropriate to acknowledge that he really is the godfather of modern interest. I don't know of anyone who was talking about it before him, and certainly no one's been as much of an advocate. Anyway, that's enough. Congratulations to Jason. Um, the power of intermittent fasting is you simply give the body a break from, from an insulin spike that comes from eating food. Especially carbohydrates, of course. When you don't eat something, insulin just stays low. And let's put that in the context of a 24 hour period. One of the great tragedies is that when someone is waking up, at the at that latter part of sleep, insulin has finally, maybe, depending on the person, it has finally come down. And of course you're insulin sensitive and it came down well early into the night. But if you're really insulin resistant, it's taken hours for your insulin to come down and it finally did. It's finally down. Your body has finally shifted to fat burning away from this constant sugar burning. And then how tragic is it that our first meal of the day is the most starchy, sugary meal of the day? It's a sugary bowl of cereal, two pieces of toast, a bagel, a glass of orange juice, you know, some other junk. And boom, they start the insulin roller coaster. And then either because they're hungry two hours later or because they've been told to eat six little meals a day, right? When insulin starts to peak and want to come back down, they bump it back up and then they bump it back up. And then every waking moment is spent in a state of elevated insulin, which of course drives insulin resistance very, very well. When you intermittent fast, you just break that cycle. And that's one of the powers of say fasting through breakfast, which I find the most, I find that the easiest one, but let me touch on that again in a moment. But if you fast through breakfast, like you just have a cup of tea or something um, then, or even if I don't drink coffee, but if someone's drinking coffee, whatever, just don't add sugar or something into it. I consider that fine. It's not breaking a fast by my standards uh, because you're not eating uh, any calories, really. and You're not taking in anything that's going to spike your insulin. So you wake up in the morning and you just coast right through breakfast. You keep insulin levels low and then you bump up your insulin for lunch. And then you shift a little bit to sugar burning, but then give yourself a break again don't eat dinner for 4 or 5 hours and then you get another bump and then stop once you've eaten dinner you stop and i will tell you i will confess everyone here's my confession that evening time after dinner is when i'm at my most tempted that is when all of a sudden all my little cravings start to just what was like what was throughout the day just a small little whisper of craving suddenly becomes this almost unavoidable shouting in my ear to start indulging and yeah. one of the ways I get through that is I just make sure I just we just don't have junk food in the house it's it's and and for me we don't have cereal because cereal is my absolute weakness I would eat cereal every moment of the day if I could um, so I just make sure we don't have those kinds of foods in the house um, we have other snacks for the kids cheese sticks and, and things like that so nevertheless, that, that's the power of intermittent fasting, to get that back on topic. My confession's mm-hmm. over. You, you, you pick a meal at one end of the day. And, and breakfast just is the easiest, partly because it's not social. For me, I, I'm very much a family man. My family is everything. I am the breakfast maker in the family. That's just part of, part of the dynamic of my family. I make breakfast family. So I get up, I've made breakfast. My kids don't care one bit if I don't eat breakfast with them. If I've made them some kind of healthy waffles, they don't even notice that dad doesn't eat. You know, I'm talking with them. They don't care. It doesn't change the family dynamic. But if I fast through dinner, then it's awkward. You know, we're sitting around the counter, or the table in the kitchen, and, and they would notice. You know, everyone's plate is full except dad's. And so even though I actually think fasting through dinner is 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 better. I'll confess. I think fasting through dinner is better. I know for me, the few times I have done that, my cravings in the evening are practically non-existent. It just doesn't work for me. As a family guy, fasting through dinner is just a little too awkward for my family dynamic. But again, I will say if someone can do it without ruining their social life, including their family dynamic, then I actually believe fasting through dinner is better than fasting through breakfast.
0: And is the reason being because as we get closer towards bedtime, melatonin starting to starting to rise and we know that melatonin is antagonistic to insulin or are there other, there are other elements to this?
1: Yeah. So uh, I actually don't know of, I don't know whether melatonin is relevant to that. That, that is tempting to speculate. I know melatonin is relevant to metabolic health in, in some general ways. I think for me, by not spiking my insulin at dinner even if it's a moderate even if it's kind of a low-carb meal it just helps me just the cravings to stay at bay I, I i can't really explain it that well just by not putting something in my guts i can just coast through it more easily than i would otherwise
0: yeah okay it makes sense
1: all right well we've
0: probably got about like five minutes before this igtv pretty much finishes but um Maybe we'll we'll finish off by um, letting my listeners know where they can learn more about you, and um, and your books, and and even some of your talks as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, my book is here. It, it's available uh, for sale anywhere books are sold. And but really, I appreciate any any purchase. I really do. Um, the book is essentially about insulin resistance, why it matters. Um, In other words, like the statistics of just globally, how relevant it is, because it's shockingly prevalent. And then I highlight all the diseases. I really dive in very specifically with with sections and chapters, all the diseases that come from insulin resistance. And then I progress to where insulin resistance comes from, what are its origins, its causal factors. And then lastly, the happy ending is what to do about it, because it's very modifiable. And then uh, my involvement on social media is really intended to be strictly um, scientific. I'm not posting pictures of my meals. I'm never posting pictures of my family. Rarely, it'll be a picture of me, and I say that because I just did today. Um, But it's very often just meant to share the latest science, um, or, or even if it's years old, with regards to human metabolism. And so with all that as a preamble, people can find me at Ben Bickman PhD through pretty much all the platforms. Awesome. Well, um, that pretty much
0: wraps up today's episode. Maybe I might just ask you one final question. Maybe do it. Three tips that you can um, suggest for people to improve insulin oh, yeah. sensitivity.
1: Yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah, I'm gladly. I'll gladly answer that. So, first tip: control carbohydrates. So just be smart. Would I say starch smart? Just know what you're getting. And essentially, if it comes in a bag or a box with a barcode, it's one It's uh, starch to be careful with. Focus on fruits and vegetables and eat them. Don't drink them. Second, prioritize protein. Make sure you're getting around one and a half to, to even up to two grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. And if you're really overweight, then it's per kilogram of ideal body weight. And that just has to come from animal. Don't waste your calories and money on plant proteins. It is a true waste. So make sure you get enough protein and then don't fear fat as that fat is coming with that protein, or you feel like you want to add some fat onto the roasted vegetables or whatever else, do it and then let it be from animal and and fruit sources and you'll be doing your body a favor. So those are my three tips, control carbs, prioritize protein, don't fear fat.
0: That's brilliant. Well, thanks so much. Um, benjamin it's been a pleasure having you on to the show and yeah i guess my listeners are going to really appreciate this and there's a lot of uh, useful content here so again my, my sa- pleasure my pleasure
1: family. lucas thanks thanks for reaching out I, I enjoyed the time thanks so much i
0: appreciate it thanks i'll speak to you soon
1: okay see you brother
0: thank you everyone for joining into today's episode For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production.
1: Say what you want.